Yeah, I think we're okay. Well, welcome tonight. We're uh, continuing in our study of a little bit of church history and some, some um, by using a study, the study of different denominations. And um, we're going to look at a lot of stuff before we're finished uh, all through this study. This study, I'm thinking, will take us on into after the first of the year for sure because we do not have December Bible study groups with all the other Christmas events going on. So uh, we're going to make a good start, I think, as we work our way into this. Tonight, we're talking about an important concept called the Reformations. And I use the term plural instead of singular. A lot of people will call it the Reformation, uh, but I would prefer to call it the Reformations plural because there really is more than one, and I'll try to illustrate that tonight as we get into this. And we'll talk a little bit about why the month of October is important for the Reformations, at least for the two, our two uh, individuals we're going to focus on tonight. So, well, welcome. Hope you've had a good day, and uh, remind you of a lot of announcements on the announcement sheet, so make sure you pick up one of those, probably the one we're all looking forward to, maybe, maybe, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but I am. Uh, looking forward to the time change this coming weekend. It'd be nice to set everything back an hour. Of course, that gets it dark earlier, but at least you have some sunlight before 7.30 in the morning, so that'll be good. And um, so time change next week. Uh, Day 5 Fellowship, some of you have involved in that, so we invite you to come. If you're not, Day 5 Fellowship meets at, we open the doors at 9.15. We meet down at the banquet room, and we get started at 10 o'clock. And uh, we have just a good time of fellowship and some time in in the scriptures and uh, have various speakers each week and uh, we have some food some snacks you can enjoy as you come in and uh, it's always a lot of fun so we're looking forward to our our second year of day five fellowship starting uh, this week it runs through the winter months and we'll finish up in march uh, next spring sounds like a long way off now doesn't it but it'll be here before we know it so um, take a look at all these things that are happening. It really is a busy time of year. And, of course, you've got uh, one more week to do early voting and then uh, Election Day on the following Tuesday. So uh, take advantage of the opportunity, some of the information that's on your weekly announcements page, some websites that will help you and maybe help others, too. You might want to pass them on. Um, that would be a benefit to them. I do have an announcement tonight. We're probably going to start to promote a little more churchwide, but we thought tonight it would just kind of start with the B BSF groups. Uh, the Children's Church Ministry is needing some teachers. This is ages 3 through 5. And uh, that's a Sunday morning, and it's a rotation. So if you get in the loop, you sort of, you know, you do it once a month or once every six weeks. Not overly demanding, but uh, if you can help with that, see Christy Hazelwood or Miss Karen, one of the two. And uh, they'll give you the information that you need, and uh, that'll be a blessing to you. The good thing about age three through five is you're bigger than all of them. And sometimes that makes a difference for sure. So um, if you can help with that, that would be greatly appreciated for that ministry. They've had, for one reason or another, they've had some teachers who've had to step out uh, because of some personal issues, some health issues, and so they're looking to fill some gaps and some needs there for sure. Well, let's, uh, let's pray, and we'll get started with things here this evening. Again, this is not our typical Bible study. We're going to look at chapters and verses. We're looking at doctrinal things. We talk about some of the differences in denominations, invariably come back to that. We're working our way, after the first of the year, to getting to Baptist. And so, talk about the Baptist history a little bit. And so that uh, 
we do have a lot of things to cover before we get there, but uh, I'll just, just let you know that's in the goal for sure as we work our way into the history of the Baptist. We're, of course, talking about Europe, and particularly now about Western Europe. Western meaning from, you know, what we call today uh, maybe Ukraine and further over, but a little more central and over. Germany and over certainly would be in our discussion, and uh, will be tonight. So uh, lots, of, uh, lots of important things to cover here. Well, let's pray as we start. I think we'll have, uh, we don't have quite as much to go, to go over as we have in times past, so we'll try to make our, our time work well for us. Father, thank you for our day. What an enjoyable, beautiful, wonderful day it's been to be in your house this morning, to worship together, to lift our voices in praise, our hearts in thanks. Thank you for the great message our pastor brought us. I pray that you'll continue to give us wisdom as we see how we can best minister in, in, uh, in this culture we live in. And I pray that you will bless the... Uh, continued work of our church and the ministry outreach and the opportunities like yesterday as we'll see in the weeks ahead to invite the community to come here and we pray that you'll bless those events and the planning. I pray that you'll bless each of the Bible study groups that are meeting tonight and that the children have a special event and I pray that you'll bless them and may each of the classes tonight uh, be blessed by you and honored for their time in the word and helping us all to grow and mature in our faith and I pray that you'll bless our evening as we conclude and anticipate a, a week ahead. And I uh, pray that you'll be honored through uh, the time we have to discuss these important topics. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, imagine for a moment uh, turning the clock back, let's say 500, maybe 550 years, maybe 600 years. Impossible for us to really get our grasp around the, what it would have been like to live in that time, right? That, tough for us to imagine. Um, you know, life without running water, bathrooms, electricity, cars, cell phones. I mean, that's... That's 98% of our world, it seems like. Um, and so it's difficult for us to envision the, all the circumstances of living in that time frame. But when you do look at history from, um, from that perspective of saying, let's step back into the 1400s and 15, early 1500s is where we'll be tonight. You're thinking about a time when religiously the Roman Catholic Church was the dominant influence in Europe. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, starts in the 4th century, kind of gets its official formal start there, um, when at the uh, Edict of Milan, the Christian faith is given liberty in the Roman Empire to, to be practiced and followed. And later, in 380, it became the official formal religion of the Roman Empire. And the church and the government or the state were united together. And for century after century after century, that's the way the world worked in Europe. And if you were a Christian, the only reason you were a Christian, it's in all likelihood, because you were a Catholic Christian. It was the only form of Christianity really known through Europe. Again, as you turn the pages of history, every once in a while you see a group pop up or a teacher pop up who might, who might make a point and get a following, but they, they typically are short-lived, mainly because the Roman Catholic Church had no had no tolerance for anyone who disagreed with them or questioned them. We saw a little bit of that this past lesson, and we'll look at we'll just glimpse at it again here today, too. The biggest thing that happened to the Roman Catholic Church was their division with the Eastern Orthodox Church, formalized in 1054, although they had had disagreements before. And actually, after 1054, when you get to the period of the Crusades, which we haven't talked about and won't, Near the period of the Crusades, 
the um, Eastern Orthodox Christians and the European Christians really kind of bonded together to try to fight the Muslims. Um, but for the most part, then and still today, these are two distinct divided areas of the name Christian. Now, of course, our time is not going to chase, going to be chasing down other churches and other groups. There's Eastern Orthodox and a whole branch, a whole bunch of different branches of that. There's a Roman Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the Greek Orthodox Church. They are all separate divisions within pretty much that idea of an Eastern Orthodox Church. When you get to North Africa, you start there to find churches that are called Occidental um, Orthodox. And the Egyptian Coptic Church is one example of that. So we're not going to worry about them. They've got their history, and they've got their issues, and their things, and their doctrines, but we're really not going to chase that. It's not our purpose tonight, or through this study. We're, on the other hand, going to chase down those who did step away and separate from the Roman Catholic Church. A couple things to be thinking about as we go through, particularly, the next several lessons. And that is, the men who stand up to oppose the Roman Catholic Church are priests within the Roman Catholic Church. So they have spent their adult lives studying, teaching, preaching, following all the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church. And from within the Roman Catholic Church, voices began to arise. We looked at two last week. John Wycliffe uh, in the uh, 1300s was one of those voices. And from England, from Oxford University, he began to proclaim deficiencies within the Roman Catholic teaching, and particularly the need for a Bible that was in the language of the people. Wycliffe also sets a pattern for us to keep in mind. So we're going to watch these individuals. They all come from within the Roman Catholic Church. Secondly, you see a pretty constant for a while now, you'll see a pretty constant parade of individuals who are somehow connected with education. Most of them are university professors. And in that position, they have access to Bibles, which is not something everybody had access to, especially before the printing press. You think about it, if you had a Bible, somebody had to hand copy that Bible. I mean, how rare is that? So these were individuals within the, the field of, of academia the early universities, which begin in the 11th and 12th centuries, have access to these resources. And these men become exposed to a Bible. It would not be unusual for Christians of that time period to live their entire life and never see or hold a Bible. That's impossible for us to think about, isn't it? They would never see or hold. It just wasn't available to them. We'll follow the trail. Again, this is a parallel trail. When you talk about denominational history and church history, the parallel trail of history is also the, the trail of the Bible itself, the history of the Bible. And I've got a couple examples out tonight that you can notice as you leave, and I'll mention, I hope somebody help me make sure I don't forget, um, to mention those and how they sort of fit into our lesson tonight. So it's an unusual time. And by the way, for people who could see a Bible, the good likelihood is they couldn't read it. There was such a high rate of illiteracy among the people. Only the people who, again, were in some stream 
of capacity to get an education could they read. And even if they could read, now you add another layer to it, just like us, could they read Latin? So it just, you, you get a real sense quickly of how challenging it would have been to have known anything other than what a Catholic priest at the church would have taught and preached and, and built your Christian worldview around. And those doctrines, as individuals were exposed to the Bible, quickly showed themselves to be empty, right? And um, these men who were in these positions at universities, as professors, as lecturers, read the Bible and saw the contradictions between the Scripture and the Catholic doctrine. And they began to raise voices about this is not what the Bible teaches. And so we looked last time at two of the men. I'm going to keep coming back to this map. I hope you can see it well enough. Um, we talked last time about Wycliffe. Wycliffe lives in the 1300s, dies in 1384. And again, an Oxford professor of theology, a well-educated man. He started, the, you know, we give him credit for the, the one who began the first translation of the Bible from Latin into what was then uh, the Middle English. Difficult for us to read for sure still, but at least he was attempting it. And remember his group, the Lollards, the people's priests, or the people's preachers, they were called. And Wycliffe had this amazing idea. Let's let the preachers of the gospel go into the communities in the countryside. You don't have to come to the church. We'll, take the, we'll follow the pattern of Christ and his disciples. And we'll, we'll send the people out. That was the work of the Lollards. I'll mention them again in just a moment. We also looked last week at a, someone who became a... a um, professor also at the University of Prague, and that was Jan Hus, or John Hus, as we say it in English typically. Hus was uh, also a professor at the university, well-trained in his theology, read the Bible, read Catholic doctrine, and said, this, these two don't match. And using his position, he began to promote opposition to the Catholic teachings. And if you know the story, again, we mentioned the story of Hus last time. He was he was invited to defend his positions before a Catholic council, the Council of Constance. And they declared him a heretic, arrested him, put him in prison. He stayed in prison several months and finally burned him at the stake. And um, he becomes an early martyr for the church. Again, we don't hear much of John Huss on this part of the world, but you get to Eastern Europe. Um, he is a well-respected and, and rightfully so um, hero of the Christian faith, of biblical Christianity more than Catholic, for sure. But the Catholics had no use for him. We'll fill in some other names on that map. During this time period, too, one of the most influential voices of the royalty of Europe was this guy, John IV. John IV instituted a policy of the government of England, of his kingdom, entitled De Heretico, Comburendo in Latin. In English, it means burn the heretic. So indeed, Henry IV instituted a policy now that the government would put their seal of approval on the execution of anyone the church declared a heretic. And to be true to that teaching, uh, he took one of the Lollards, William Saltry, and he was executed 
at the funeral, I mean at the, uh, the fire, um, for being a preacher and teacher of the Bible and not of Catholic doctrine. That begins quite a long trail. This is 1401. And for the next 250 or so years, Europe will do the same to many people. And we'll talk about others before we finish uh, this series. Europe and its many different countries will burn and execute multiple individuals for their religious beliefs. Again, that sounds foreign to us. Other situations, it wasn't individuals they went after, it was groups of people. I'll talk to you later about a, a, um, um, a slaying of French uh, uh, performed primarily at the government's directive and the tens of thousands of French who died because they believed the Bible, not the Catholic Church. And before we finish our lesson tonight, we'll talk a little bit about some of the wars and we'll, we'll sort of see this all becomes escalated to a level that's never been before. It was into this world a century or so later. Well, he's born, born in, the, in the 1400s. But a man walks onto the scene named Martin Luther. Luther was a very intelligent, well-educated young man. He was actually studying for the law, uh, for the practice of being a lawyer in his time in Germany, when through a series of, of uh, an unusual event, he was on his way home, I'm uh, sorry, he was on his way back to school from home. He'd been home for a visit, was walking his way back to school, got caught in a terrible July thunderstorm, lightning struck so close it knocked him down. And he prayed to his, as a Catholic, he prayed as he should to his family's patron saint, Saint Anne. And in praying to Saint Anne, Martin said, let me live and I'll be a monk. And soon the storm cleared, he got his wits about him, and he would fulfill his calling to be a monk. Much to the disgust of his family, by the way, who had spent a lot of money putting him through school to be a lawyer. But he was a, he was a man of great intellect, and he quickly showed that intellect but in becoming a monk, he lived the only life he knew, a Catholic monk, in which he would whip himself, deprive himself. It is said that he would go days without food or water. Why? Because in his mind, the Catholic integration mindset was, you have to show penance toward God for your sins. He would pray for hours a day. He would deprive himself. He would whip himself in all in, in order to satisfy what he thought was his own capacity to be righteous before God. Luther would advance. He would leave, eventually, leave the, his, would eventually leave the monastery to pursue an assignment to be a theological teacher at the University of Wittenberg, Germany, a relatively new university at the time. And he was appointed to be the teacher there of theology. And his studies in theology got him into the Bible, right? And he, again, the pattern repeats itself. Studying the Bible, he quickly found that there's problems what the Bible teaches. It doesn't jive with what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching. And 
505 years from tomorrow, on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther had written a list of 95 problems with an action of the Roman Catholic Church, a teaching of the Roman Catholic Church I mentioned a couple of weeks ago called indulgences. Indulgences are your ability to pay the church to give you a letter of forgiveness for all your sins. Think about that for a moment. That's a pretty good fundraising opportunity, isn't it? So if Pastor Paul comes up next week and says, you know, for half a million dollars, I'll write you a note handwritten that will forgive you for all your sins. That's called an indulgence. By the way, Pastor Paul will never do that, I'm pretty sure. That's an indulgence. The Roman Catholic Church was going all over Europe to sell these things. They had sent the sales force out. Not only could you buy forgiveness for your own sins that you had committed, you could buy forgiveness for your future sins. Well, that's a pretty good deal. Or you could buy forgiveness for sins of dead loved ones who are in purgatory, suffering, being purged. That's what purgatory means. They're being purged for their sin. So the salesman had a pitch, right? And their pitch is, which one of you is going to be so cruel to leave your mother, your grandmother in purgatory? Right? How hard-hearted are you? not to be concerned about your family members that have died and gone to purgatory. And one of their little mottos was, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And the Roman Catholic Church made a lot of money in this process. All that money went to help to go to Rome to help build the Vatican and to pay for this guy named Leonardo da Vinci to paint the ceilings. And Raphael to paint the papal apartments and so on. They were getting a lot of money. Well, Martin Luther saw a problem with that. And he wrote 95 statements. And if you really are interested in this, you can go online and you can see these statements. It's an interesting read. You can read the 95 statements, he says, of why indulgences are wrong. Now, of course, it's not the day of social media or even newspapers very well. So the way he made his list known was he took it to the church door. That's what, that's what this image is intending to apply. Because on the church door, as you can see, the church door kind of became the community notice center. You put up your little your notifications because everybody goes to church. If you want somebody to know something, you put it on the church door. Well, Martin Luther knew how important that was. And so on October 31st, he goes and he attaches or posts the 95 Thesis there to the church door. Why October 31st? This is long before, of course, Halloween. But it was important in the Catholic calendar because on November the 1st, that was what the Roman Catholics, and still today, will celebrate All Saints Day. You know, if you know much about the Roman Catholic Church, all these different saints have their day. It's St. Valentine's Day. It's St. Nicholas's Day. Those are all have Roman Catholic overtones to them, for sure, and many others. But just in case we, we just run out of days eventually, and there's tens of thousands of saints, so we just have all the rest of you get to lump into one day, and it's called November the 1st, All Saints Day. 
Another term for All Saints Day was All Hallows Day. Most of us will know the phrase hallow from the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. It means holy or sanctified. And so All Hallows Day in the Roman Catholic Church, All Saints Day, would be November 1st. Well, what do you call the day before All Hallows Day? Hallows Eve. That's where the term comes from in our English. It still has Catholic overtones to it in our culture. Today it's just a pagan holiday as far as I'm concerned. But that was the idea. So Luther takes his list to the church, puts it on the door there at the, at the uh, University Church at Wittenberg, and the next day everybody comes in. Now Luther did something very interesting. He didn't write this in German. He wrote it in Latin. The importance of that is only certain people could read it in Latin. The priest could read it. Other professors could read it. People who had some intelligence and education could read it, but not the general population. They would only read German at best. But once word got out what this was, it became copied and multiplied. And over the next few weeks, and especially the next few months and the next few years, and here we are 505 years later still talking about it, it began to spread. Especially during this, during this time when the printing press was in operation. So getting copies made was not difficult in that, for that day and time, for sure. Wow, a monk has raised questions about the indulgences? That's an insult to the Pope. And there were all types of problems that this created. It became the ripple effect. This indeed is the date that is identified as the date of the beginning of the German Reformation. Some people will say the beginning of the Reformation in general. I don't agree with that. I think it's too broad a category. It's only for the German people at this point. Well, let's talk about Martin Luther a little bit. Again, a German monk, a priest, a professor. Don't you love the outfits? That's something else to catch. When you see a lot of these pictures, and you'll start, we'll start seeing more of them as we move forward, you'll always see these individuals wearing their academic garb. Um, the hat looks funny. It's called a tam, and he's wearing his academic robes. If you see this type of garb today, it's going to be at a university or a college where they have graduation. You go to graduation ceremonies, and the faculty and the administration all dress up in their academic garb. And they parade as part of the ceremony, you know, to see all the colors. And But one thing is common. They've all got a black hat. And we, it doesn't look like a, a, um, a mortar hat, we often call it. Uh, that's more of a later concoction. But uh, they all have the black hat and the black robes. Through his lectures and through his teachings and through his writings, he came to a conclusion that he had no capacity to redeem himself. Actually, Pastor Paul was in the passage that Martin Luther spent the most time on in helping to de derive this conclusion, Romans chapter 1, where it says the just shall live by faith. Pastor mentioned it this morning. And Martin Luther had spent his whole adult life trying to trying to exercise his own actions to bring redemption. And the light of God's word revealed to him, no, it's not about your actions, it's about faith. Luther later would begin his translation to the German people 
of the Bible. It took him two years to do the New Testament and about um, eight or nine years, maybe ten, to do the Old Testament. What's out on the display on the tables you leave on the right-hand side is a sample of what a Luther German Bible page would have looked like. It's a, it's a replica. It's not real, but it's a replica. It gives you a good sense of what it looks like. Of course, you probably can't read it in German. On the left-hand side, the bigger frame out there is a picture of the Gutenberg Bible, which again was in Latin. But remember, Gutenberg is German. Germany is the center of this new technology called the printing press. And so getting Martin Luther's pamphlets and writings, books, everything printed was not difficult for the time. So Luther indeed was an important part of that. Many of us might not know, though, as much as you hear about Luther and his theology, is that he was also a hymn writer, wrote well over 100 hymns, the most famous of which, uh, probably most of us would know, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is written by Martin Luther during the time when he was under persecution from the Catholic Church. A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark, you know, he, he just paints this big imagery Bulwark ever standing, he just paints this big imagery of God is greater and bigger. If you go back and read that and you hear it with the, with the little knowledge of Martin Luther, you really find a great depth in the words. But he wrote many hymns. Not so many have been translated into English, but certainly they're a part of the Lutheran church today. Luther was called um, by the Roman Catholic Church, like Huss, to come and give an account of himself. And Luther knew the story of Huss. And his, even his acquaintance says, don't do this. So remember what they did to Huss. They're trying to trap you in order to do that. Everybody's alarm's going off, right? Um, he was called to give an account of himself at what looks like a funny title. It looks like a bad way to have a weight loss program, doesn't it? The, we would say it in English, diet of worms. In German, it's diet of worms. And uh, in that day and time, this was an official government called assembly. Who was there? Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Frederick the Wise was there, who was like the governor. So imagine a meeting has been called. The president is here in his cabinet. The governor is here in his cabinet. All the important people are here to hear Martin Luther give his defense of himself. This is um, four years, nearly four years after the 95 Thesis. And he has been asked two questions. They brought a bunch of his books and said, Martin Luther, did you, are those your writings? He looked at them. He said, yes, they are. Second question, do you recant your teachings of that or will you stand by them and suffer the punishment of the Roman Catholic Church. He said, I can't answer that right now. Will you give me time to think about it and pray about it? So sure enough, they give him the latitude to go and to um, have a night to think about it. What's he going to do? He comes back the next day and gives a long speech. He gives it in Latin and he gives it in German. He concludes his his speech with these words, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scripture or by clear reason, 
For I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scriptures. And he would go on to say as he concluded his speech, Here I stand, I can do no other. Well, he had declared himself an enemy of the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church at that point. And it seemed to be that his fate, like John Huss, would be sealed. However, Charles V, the emperor, was not willing to do so because he knew if he did, he would have a civil war in his hands. So the council agreed to let Luther go, but to remove from him any protection of the church and to declare him basically public enemy number one, which meant we're not going to kill you, but we're going to turn you loose, and any of you that want to kill him, feel free to. Luther leaves the assembly, and as he gets on his horse um, and starts to leave, a group of horsemen ride up. They are armed, they are masked, and they forcibly take Luther, and off to the woods they go. Everyone is standing there thinking his fate is sealed. This group was in the woods waiting for the moment, and they're going to go execute him. We'll never see him again. Luther, I'm sure, imagine, put yourself in that position. You don't know what's happening. Who are these men? You just know that you're riding through the woods. As it turned out, this group of men were hired by Frederick the Wise, the governor, if you will, of the area, who was a friend and supporter of Luther's. He hired these men to kidnap Luther and to take him to some unknown location and not to tell him. After all, Frederick was wise. He could say to anyone who asked him, I have no idea where Luther's at. I'm wondering too. They took him to a castle, and he basically went 10 months in hiding. Very interesting story. After a while, as things begin to pick up, the intensity of the conflicts begin to multiply. He says, I can't stay here any longer. What good am I in hiding? And he comes out of that looking very different. He had grown a beard, let his hair grow, uh, something very different from what typically you find with the monks. And um, he begins to voice very openly his positions against the Catholic Church. But he's in friendly territory. As long as he stays within the confines of Frederick, he is pretty safe. And indeed, he does. He goes on, by the way, personally, to uh, begin to write about the problems with the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the doctrinal issues, the practices. He even talked about monasteries and nunneries are useless. Some of, the nun, some of the nunneries and monasteries were emptied, evacuated. He arranged for a group of nuns to be, to, be, um, to be freed from a nunnery, nine of them to be freed from a nunnery. He did this little, like a Mission Impossible thing. He hired a fish salesman to take his barrels into the nunnery. Now I'm, I'm here delivering fish. And in the darkness of the night, nine nuns got on the barrel. They pulled, they covered it all, got in the, in the um, uh, cart. They covered it all with a big blanket. And he rode out with nine nuns under his, under his cover there. They were all brought back to Luther. What shall we do with these nine nuns? We got them all. 
And he said, we'll, we'll arrange. He contacted their families. Three of their families said, we'll take them. We'll support them. We'll protect them. The other six, of the other six, five, he found, um, he played a little bit of a dating game. He found husbands for them who would marry them. But there was one named Catherine who he could not find a husband for. And in a story that's only fit for Hallmark Channel, Luther marries Catherine. He calls her my Katie. And they, by all accounts, have a wonderful marriage. They have six children, one, two of which will die early. One will die at age one. And one of his daughters died at age 13 from the plague. And Luther himself will go on to live to the ripe old age of 63. He considered himself a very old man in that generation. That time it probably was. He died at age 63 while he was away from home. He'd gone back to his hometown to settle a dispute. And there he, um, uh, he died. What by all appearances seems to be either heart attack or stroke, something pretty sudden. Uh, while he was there. Only two of his children, two of his boys were with him at the time. Lutheran began, and I'm going to talk about these later. I, I thought I might do it tonight, but I don't have time. We'll talk about the five solas later, the five soul statements. And we'll, cause we're going to come back to them quite a bit. The Lutherans eventually would set their doctrine on a book that is still in use today by the Lutheran church called um, the Book of Concordia. Basically, you want to translate it, it's the book of agreements. Here's all the things we agree to as Christians, built upon some of these other things, um, from past church history and things that Luther and his right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, uh, wrote about their doctrinal positions. Still in use today by the, by the Lutheran church, to some more, to some less. Um, and these are the things that are in it. The Lutherans believe the Lord's Supper is a channel through which grace is bestowed. If you remember, the Roman Catholic position is always Christ is in the elements. The wafer literally becomes the body of Christ. The wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. It changes form. And when you consume those, you're literally consuming the body and blood of Christ. Luther could not agree with that, of course. But he wasn't willing to kick Christ out of it altogether. So he taught a principle by which Christ is in the room, as it were, above, under, and below, or uh, around, rather, uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper. He is still there in a, in a mystical way. Because we, we t and when we do that in his presence, we receive grace. He did not leave the Catholic term sacrament. That's not a term we as Baptists would use, but it's, he would still hold on to that term from the Catholics. And, of course, we wouldn't take that position on the Lord's Supper either way. Lutherans, like Catholics, believe in infant baptism. We, this is, the baptism issue is going to be important. We'll sort of lay it on second level for now, but eventually it will come to the surface, and we'll spend a lot more time talking about it. Lutherans will baptize infants which they believe is a necessary element of salvation. In order to be saved, you have to be baptized. And a child, an infant, three days old, could be baptized, similar for the Catholics. They will do that too. And that bestows a grace upon this child that is just awaiting a time when they will make a confession of Christ. But at least they got the baptism done. By the way, the Catholics began teaching that 
Because the Catholic, te- the Catholic doctrine became that if a child, anyone died who had not been baptized, they immediately went to hell. So what parent would want that for their newborn? So Catholics will baptize them as quick as they can. The Lutherans kept that same position. As many great things as Luther did in seeing the problems with the Catholic Church, this was one that he was satisfied he could retain. They do have a sense of predestination. I'll talk about that in other lessons too because it's not a topic we get away from. They believe that God ordained who would be saved in eternity past. So why worry about evangelism, right? God's going to save who he's already predestined to save. That's not a Baptist position, by the way, obviously. And the Lutheran church would go on to be, continue to be a part of the government so that Lutheran pastors in Germany, for example, are actually employees of the state. That sounds very different, doesn't it? And by the way, Lutheranism is the state religion of about half a dozen other European countries um, around Germany. The Luther's rose is the symbol of Lutheranism. Um, Luther explained that the red heart with the black cross at the center should remind us that the righteous live by faith in Christ, the crucified. The heart rests on a white rose to show that faith gives joy, comfort, and peace. The rose is white because white is the color of righteousness. There's a blue border around the white rose indicating heaven is our ultimate destination and the gold ring identifies the eternality of God's promise of salvation. So you'll, you'll certainly see that in Lutheran and other Reformed churches of, of have some of that mindset. The denomination itself in America is dominated by two primary groups. The largest, there's nine different Lutheran sub-denominations or assemblies, or conferences, whatever you want to call them. The largest of these is the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the ELCA, it's called. It is, it is the more liberal, and I'll demonstrate that in a moment. The more conservative side is the Lutheran Church of the Missouri Synod. Now, when the Germans came to America, they obviously settled and did what they had done in Germany. They set up their churches as Lutheran churches. There's a large constituency of German uh, heritage in Pennsylvania, for example. Germantown, Pennsylvania. We have a Germantown here in the Triad area, just north of Winston-Salem. Uh, and so you will find that true. And they, a large number settled in the Midwest as they became farmers and did what they had done in Germany. They just farmed and tilled the soil. And there's called the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Synod is a word that simply means kind of like an association is a word we would probably identify with it. The ELCA is the more liberal, as I mentioned. They do ordain women. They welcome and ordain LGBTQ members. Interesting, our pastor talked about that this morning in the broad landscape. Um, this group has some very straightforward acceptance of LGBTQ and, uh, and, and supports those members um, and their lifestyles. Now, let me introduce you very quickly. So that's Lutheran. Lutheranism. Uh, has about 3 million-plus uh, adherents here in the United States. So it's not the largest of all, for sure, but most, most, many of the families, uh, of course, have German heritage and uh, are used to, that, uh, used to that set. As I mentioned, Luther would go on to die. Instead of dying as a martyr, he would live out his natural life. Not so with this man. 
This man is named Ulrich Zwingli, and he is uh, part of the Swiss. He is the leader of the Swiss Reformation, which took place primarily in Zurich, Switzerland. Um, and there's three main cities in Switzerland that during this time frame become sort of hubs of anti-Catholic teaching. Zurich is one. Geneva is another one that in another century will rise to be the premier city, Geneva. And then a third one called Bern, Switzerland. He too was a Catholic priest. You see him in his academic garb. He was a professor too and um, a priest. He authored, Luther writes in 95, Zwingli writes 67. They're doing this somewhat in parallel. There's only about two months difference in their age. Luther is born in December of one year, Zwingli of, of 1883. Zwingli is born in January, February of 1884. There's just a couple of months difference in their age. But they grew up in very different places, in very different circumstances. Um, Zwingli, the, the, uh, the Alps were his home. I mean, that's where his world was, right? And he authorized, or he authored 67 articles which, like Luther, were statements against the Catholic Church. Whereas Luther's 95 primarily focused on the indulgences, Zwingli's 67 focused on the general problems with the Catholic Church as a whole, and it became the foundation for his problems. Um, with the Catholic Church and others who followed him. I'll talk about his death at the Battle of Kappel. And um, typically the Swiss don't have a church. They have a movement that will grow into become the Swiss Brethren Movement, but it spreads, and, and brethren is a term that's used often with their things. But typically with Zwingli, you talk about churches in what's called the Reformed tradition. One of the things that Zwingli wrote about was that there's no biblical reason to fast. The Catholic Church have this, have this idea of fasting, especially on Lent. You know, you don't eat meat on Friday during Lent. We're all, we've all probably heard that somewhere. Zwingli had a real problem with that. And in the, the problem, um, some of his followers on a Friday during Lent invited friends over, and they served sausage. History records this meal as being the affair of the sausages because this stirred up quite a controversy. You have broken Catholic law by eating sausage on a Friday during Lent. Zwingli would go on to preach on this topic and to write on this topic to his community. He too would be called to a council, but not a council of the Roman Catholic Church, a council and put in place by his city leaders. This particular assembly there in um, the city was attended again by all the highest of political officials. And Zwingli and a Catholic were basically debating. And Zwingli was a great debater. And the, he wins the day. And the city government says Zwingli can preach as long as he preaches from the Bible. He has shown us everything he's preaching from the Bible. He has our liberty. Again, imagine that for a moment. You have to get permission from the city council to preach. But that was the day in which they lived. And so Zwingli gets permission to continue preaching and teaching his doctrines. 
Here are some of his statements of his 67. Just pick a few. They sound very reasonable to us as Baptists many hundreds of years later. Christ is the only way to salvation for all who were or ever shall be. We would agree with that. Number 19 in the list, Christ is the only, only mediator between God and ourselves. Well, that's an offense against the Catholics who want to say, well, what about Mary? And what about the saints? And what about the Pope, right? Whoever remits any sin only for the sake of money is the companion of Simon Magnus and Balaam, which are two of the bad guys in the Bible, right? And a real messenger of the devil. As we get further into this study, one of the things we'll find out is these guys did not mince words. Uh, they were very accurate and very determined to make sure they made their point. So 67 Thesis. There was a time when these two men met. That's Luther on the left and Zwingli with his hand in the air. They met at something called the colloquy, the, uh, colloquy, colloquy, I'll get it right in a moment, of Marburg. One of the local leaders said, these two men need to get together. Again, they're about the same age. Imagine if we had all the Lutherans and all the Zwingliites together. What could we do with this movement of the Protestant faith? They came to debate 15 issues, and they agreed on number one, two. They agreed on 14 of them, but number 15, they could not find agreement. And the issue was the Lord's Supper. Remember, Luther is saying the Lord is in a special presence in the room, and he imparts grace through us taking of the Lord's Supper to us. Zwingli said, no, it is all symbolic. It is like when Jesus said, I am the vine, part of his argument. When Jesus said, I am the door, it's just a symbol to help us understand him better. Luther would have nothing of it. And even though they agreed on 14 of 15 articles, they could not agree on what Luther thought was the most important. He even refused to shake his hand when the meeting disbanded after three days. So, interesting interactions between these men, for sure. Zwingli talked about some things that, again, we would hear and hear well to say, well, what's wrong with that? He would talk about the infallibility of the Scripture as the authority over the Roman Catholic Church, meaning it's more important than the Pope. The Bible should be accessible to everyone. He, too, would write translations for his language, for his people. He rejected the Roman Catholic Church as the only way to God through its clergy and through its sacraments and through all of its list of things you have to do, confessions and so on. He called every believer to have a distinct and direct personal relationship with God. Again, there's nothing there. So where do you guess the Baptists get a little more tendency from? Typically more from, we would certainly agree with Zwingli in more things than not. Um, and these indeed would lay a foundation that will eventually find its way into the history of the Baptist. Zwingli denied, I mentioned earlier, an imposed fast for church or spiritual reasons. He rejected celibacy and marriage for the priest. He would marry a widow who had three children from a previous husband who had died on the battlefield. They would together have four children. And so he had a, quite a family to take care of and tend to. He structured government. He agreed that government and church had to work together for the betterment of the community. Again, something we would not jump in line for that teaching. 
He rejected the communion of Luther and said, no, it's just a symbol. He would die in a battle, I mentioned earlier, called the Battle of Capel. And this is an image of, the, of his death. The Battle of Capel imposed five Catholic cities, got their armies together, and said, we're going to march on Zurich. We're going to show Zwingli and his followers that the Roman Catholic Church cannot be messed with. 9,000 soldiers come to their city. They did not even know they were, you know, it was a surprise attack. As quickly as word got to them from the farmers who said, hey, there's a big army coming. It's the Catholics. You better get ready. They had a little time to prepare. And they rounded up 3,500 soldiers to go out and meet 9,000. And as you would predict, the outcome was not good. When they found Zwingli, uh, when the Catholics found him, uh, he was executed. You see the man with the long spear there. He was executed. Uh, he, he was already wounded, had been, had been um, injured in several ways, and was on the ground, and uh, one of the Catholic leaders um, uh, killed him. There is some stories also told of the battle after, after he was dead that they took a large rock and bashed his head in. We do know this, that they took his body and quartered it, cut it into force, and threw it on a big uh, fire pyre for, um, um, uh, to get rid of the bodies. And they said, no one will know of Zwingli when we finish with him, right? That was their mindset. So he died there in his mid-40s. Uh, as a martyr for the faith, and again, Zwingli is remembered uh, by many people in Europe and those of that region particularly. And uh, here, here's, here's the memorial stone there at the site near where he died uh, to be recognized. And uh, again, one of those names little known. What would happen from the battle there, though, it would be the spark of what would happen in the years ahead for another 144 years. Catholics and Protestants would be fighting each other. Nations would gather into this. A lot, of the, a lot of the identity of whether you're a Catholic nation or a Protestant nation, battles and wars raged. And we'll talk about many more of them and the, why did they end in 1648. But through this time period, it's a very much in, intense period of war. And we'll see the impact that has. I want to mention one more man before we close just briefly. Because he also met both these men and had interactions with them. His name is Erasmus. Desiderius Erasmus was the scholar of his generation. Uh, by every account, a man of many skills academically. He knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, he knew Latin, he knew multiple languages. And his position of, he's Dutch, his position of authority allowed him an opportunity to engage these men at an academic level. He was Catholic, too, Catholic priest. You see him wearing his garb. Um, and as a Catholic priest, he did not want to separate from the Catholic Church. He tried to talk Luther through communications and, and interaction with him and with Zwingli. Zwingli actually has a bi or had a Bible that was given to him by Erasmus as a gift. He wanted to say, we can fix the church from inside. Why are you trying to separate? Right? He tried to make that argument to them. Uh, and so he tried to imp impose them. He compiled a Greek New Testament that becomes important for us. We're not done with Erasmus yet either. We'll talk about him later um, because he's going to create the Greek text that is called the Textus Receptus. And we'll get to that story at another lesson to come. So here's our reformers. Wycliffe, 
Names we need to know, right? John Huss in um, Prague. Martin Luther in Wittenberg, Germany. And Ulrich Zwingli in Sweden. And we'll put in kind of second row uh, Erasmus uh, from, um, from, um, uh, from Denmark. And uh, we get an opportunity to start to fill in some names and some people and some influences that are important to us. So now we've seen the Roman Catholic Church, not only is there an Eastern Orthodox split, but there's now a, what's called the Protestant. The root word to Protestant is protest. These were people protesting the Roman Catholic Church. And we'll continue down this path a little bit next week when we talk about the Church of England, which we all got our fill of watching the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, the Church of England and the Anglican Church, as we know it, we know them here in America as the Episcopal Church. And we'll see a little bit of their history and uh, the things that they did um, and some of the stances they took. So that'll be uh, next week. Remind you of the Appel family. We're still, thank you for those gifts to them and supporting them. And I would encourage you to say, if you think about them this month, maybe give a little bit of extra because we'd like to send it to them at the 1st of December as a little bit of an extra for our Christmas gift for him and his family. Well, let's pray, and as we do, we'll pray to, uh, not only for the week ahead, but praying for many on our prayer list. So uh, take an opportunity with a prayer list in hand to uh, go through those names this week and pray for those folks. Father, thank you for our time this evening to uh, be introduced again to these two men and the impact they had upon a move of doctrine and truth and the emphasis they placed upon the Bible. I pray that you'll bless uh, our continued study of these historical events and these, these events that impact Christianity um, that we practice today and that we follow and that we hold to be true. And I pray that you will uh, bless our time as we continue. Bless our week ahead. I pray that you'll give us a great week. May we be a testimony of you. May we offer you praise every day for the good blessings you bestow upon us. And we do pray for those in our prayer list tonight. We just know that there are many special and, and, um, uh, and, and just unique needs there that uh, your power and your strength and your healing is needed and we pray that you will supply those needs for each individual and for each family and pray that you'll be honored through our time as we go in christ's name we pray amen lord bless everyone hope you have a great week